You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Rachel and Jeff. Hello. And hello, YouTube. And welcome back to live chat, our fourth live chat of this little mini series we've been doing. Our last one for now. Yes. But to to celebrate the last of them, uh, we're having a double feature. So we have mm-hmm. two guests today instead of just one, which has been what we've normally mm-hmm. been doing. For anyone just joining us, this is a series where we invite guests for a Q&A about topics we've discussed on the podcast before. Today we are talking about conservation paleontology, which is a field of paleont where you're using fossil information to help inform conservation of living species. This actually, way back in episode eight, our first listener requested episode. It was. Yeah. So it's a a historic little moment. It was one of the first topics we got requested to do that we both went, oh. And then we did it. (laughs) So without further rambling from me... Rachel and Jeff, if you would please introduce yourselves, uh, what you do, and what is your relation to this field of study? I'll go first. Sure, I'll go first. You go first. Uh, So I'm an integrative conservation scientist, um, and what that means is I just use many different disciplines to help inform my uh, issue that I'm concerned with, and that's for me to put bison back into their native prairie. It's a lot of restoration of bison. Um, I have my bachelor's, um, from, uh, ETSU, East Tennessee State University in geology, master's in geosciences and paleontology. And I just received my doctorate at Texas A&M in wildlife sciences. And so, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll go next. Um, so I'm Rachel and I just got my doctorate at Texas A&M too. Um, I'm a conservation paleobiologist. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I did a bachelor's in biology and then master's in paleontology at ETSU and a master's in teaching. Um, so my work is also interdisciplinary. I use lots of different parts I've learned along the way. And whereas Jeff studies one species, bison, I study communities of hoofed mammals um, and how species coexist on the landscape and the relationship that their bones have with the environment so that we can study them through time using fossils. Excellent. Fascinating. Yep. It's just such a cool topic of, of discussion. So the way that this will work is we're get, we have a, a list of questions that we've collected from our listeners, our followers on the internets, and anyone who is here in the chat can feel free to chime in, throw a question in the YouTube chat, and let us know. If you are not in the YouTube chat, but you're watching somewhere out there on the internet, uh, send us, you know, tr- you can give it a shot on Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> and I'll be switching over to them occasionally, and I'll, hopefully I'll notice it. Uh, also, I should mention, just a little plug, we got new shirts. Yeah. So for our listeners, these are the new uh, the, the new designs for our merch. And that's the only hour. We're, we're very excited about it. <laughs> so I'd like to start can, off with a question. Can we get this on your website? Actually, yeah, you I can get these on our Zazzle store. All right. Perfect. perfect. So the link is in the description of every podcast episode, and you can also find it on the blog. So I want to start off with a question. <laughs> Um, you mentioned, uh, Rachel, that uh, Jeff is studying conservation uh, issues related to a single species, whereas you're working on communities. Uh, so 
eco eco ecosystem minded more. How do those two approaches differ? So our work is fairly similar. Um, we have the same end goal, I suppose. Um, but he's focused more on how, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> how the, the animal um, is able to live in this environment um, metabolically and physiologically and um, more specifically about that species. Um, whereas I look at their skeletal elements and kind of group species based on the environment that occurs there. So given, say, precipitation, these are the the makeup of ankle bones that could live in this area. Um, but on a, so it's on a different scale for the animals. It's kind of like ground level and more wider view. Yeah. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. I think that's perfect. (laughs) Um, his research is also limited in North America because that's where bison bison occurs. So he's able to work at smaller spatial scales. Um, I work globally, um, with artiodactyls. So even, even toed split hoofed mammals, um, they occur on most everywhere. Um, they're very widespread. <laughs> so I'm working at a larger spatial scale. Um, my communities are not as close together as his bison ranches might be. Okay. For any of the Eurasians listening, I'm game to work in European <laughs> bison. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, you will find his Twitter contact below his name. <laughs> so, uh, one more quick question, and then I'll start getting into these lists. I would assume, uh, based on especially uh, Jeff's talking about bison, and we're talking about conservation, that most of your fossil work is more recent geological things. Yeah, I, I definitely stay in the sub-fossil, barely fossil category. And by that, I mean, um, when I'm ex- excavating these bones, they still have quite a bit of collagen left in them. Um, and that makes it really easy to do radiocarbon dating. So within 40,000 years, I can have a really good con- contextual basis for when these animals lived. It's pretty high resolution compared to what you start looking at for mosasaurs or going back even further into trilobites. You really have that huge difference of geologic age. Um, but yeah, that makes, uh, specifically for my work, bison really, really u- um, useful is probably the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also that bison were cosmopolitan in North America. They were from Alaska into all the way down to Nicaragua, uh, from New York all the way to California. They were ranging everywhere. And we have tens of thousands of bison fossils throughout Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So it's a great species to work with. And my fossil species are, are of similar age now. Um, so I've done some work with um, like late Pleistocene, glacial, interglacial type sites, um, as well as historical records um, based in the last hundred years. Um, and you guys know that my work on the rhinos was much older. And so my goal is to push this kind of work further back in time. Um, mm-hmm. but it's still fairly new and using the recent, more recent fossils, um, gives us a lot better resolution and allows us to establish these kind of, um, trait relationships and patterns that, um, we can then use further back when it becomes more sparse. For our, uh, people who have been following the series, last episode, we had our friend Laura on mm-hmm. and we talked a bunch about research she did with rhinos at Gray. Well, Rachel was the lead author on that. Uh, based on your, we, I, re, I remember when you were working on it as your thesis <laughs> yes. way back in the day. I started that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got questions are pouring in on the chat. So I'm going to start oh, asking yeah. some people. Yeah, we've got like three rapid fire. 
Let's start getting some of our pre-submitted questions. This one is from Lucas on Facebook, our bud Lucas, who asks, do paleontologists connect with lobbying groups in the United States or elsewhere to assist in conservation efforts? So thank you, Lucas, for that question. Yes. <laughs> um, Jeff answer it. He's been doing a lot of policy work with his research lately. Um, so you can answer this one. Thanks for that, Rachel. <laughs> Back to you, Jeff. Uh, so, yes, I do work a little bit more with policy, uh, as we just talked about. Bison is is sub-fossil into archaeological uh, history, into historical, and into today. And the program I work with is the Boone and Crockett Club and the Dr. Uh, James Red Duke um, Wildlife Conservation and Policy Program at Texas A&M. And so what we do is we strive to take our actionable science and make it usable for policymakers, decision makers. And so a lot of what I do is creating work um, that helps inform how best to create sanctuaries, wildlife refuges, um, expand national parks if we can, or better inform how management should be done on them. We'll get to that in a little bit later. Um, <laughs> For how paleontologists work with public policy uh, right now, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology is working right now on trying to reverse some of the recent decisions on Bears Ears National Monument. And really, that's trying to strive to protect this resource that's once in a lifetime for us, really. It's the only chance we're going to get to know what it used to live in these strata. Um, and so that's one that first comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, I think conservation paleo, especially with the bleeding the subfossil into historic is going to lend itself to have a lot more of these connections moving forward. Mm -hmm. Jumping off of that, sort of speaking of working with modern conservationists, Jesse on Facebook asks, is there a positive success story that you could share? Um, so Lynn's comes to mind. Yep. Um, so a USGS researcher, Lynn Wingard, um, she came to give a seminar talk in our department. Um, two years ago, maybe. Um, she's done work in the greater Everglades um, region, and they've done this multi-proxy study um, using pollen and invertebrates and I think some Mosques. benthic mm -hmm. organisms. Um, but they're measuring hailing levels over time, so the salt levels, and they can track sea level rise through time. And they've used that to implement restoration efforts in the Everglades. And um, their focus is on hydrology and helping preserve, you know, the mangrove swamps and some of the um, more solid inland parts of the Everglades um, from sea level rise. That's one that I tend to bring up in a lot of my work because <laughs> yeah. I really, I really like that the, the multi-proxy and like actionable work that they did there. And I think they worked over maybe 5,000 years. So not incredibly deep time, but mm -hmm. enough time to see the changes happening. And I will say my master's thesis actually led to quite a bit of a big impact. Uh, so I was looking at what is the native status of bison in the Colorado Plateau region as the Four Corners, um, specifically focusing in on Grand Canyon National Park and the surrounding area, Kaibab um, National Forest. Um, right next to it. And so what I was setting out to do is document where do we find bison in the, in the subfossil and the archeological record and the historical record and rock paintings, all of these different resources of when are bison here. Um, and what I found was that bison actually are native uh, recently in that area, but not in huge populations like they were in Great Plains. 
But what that led to was from the publication that came out of my thesis led to a now uh, interagency agreement between the state of Arizona and the National Park Service and the Forest Service to all work together on creating a management plan to keep bison there. They already have bison on the North Rim, but there were some other issues trying to figure out, are these native? If they're not native, the NPS cannot keep bison management on their property. But if they're native, then they have that uh, narrative to stay on it and uh, make it ecologically sound. And that's what's happening. That's incredible. Well, and I like that because that's a question that I don't think a lot of people would realize you'd need to ask is, are the animals that are here now where they're supposed to be or historically supposed to be? Right. And how would you know that? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, it is a, a sentence that I've said before, and I, I've loved it ever since I heard somebody else smart say it, <laughs> that paleontology is a field of study that uniquely gets to explore ecosystems untouched by humans. Yeah. You get that yeah. sense of what it was like before. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of some modern uh, conservation stories, we have a question in the YouTube chat from I'm gonna I'm gonna say Bohan or Bojan. Tell me if I'm wrong uh, on pronouncing this name. Who is asking about Yellowstone? I don't know if the two of you know much about Yellowstone, but this question is interested in the story, the impact of wolves, and how scientists study that sort of rebound and impact story i do i know more (laughs) um okay so we'll talk our way through this um so yeah the wolves were brought back um i forget how many years ago now 20 in the 90s or so um and they documented these cascading effects in the park. Um, so the elk population changed and the rivers changed and it, it was attributed to the wolves and they've since kind of backed off of that. I think um, the, the, the strength of the impact that the wolves had. Um, but there were definitely some changes that were happening there. Um, so I don't have, much knowledge of the Yellowstone case specifically. Um, But something that I try to tackle or I'm going to try to tackle in my work is considering these national parks um, that have these static or these uh, like fixed boundaries. They're not necessarily allowing for species shifts through their parks. Um, So when we have these species, these elk and these wolves and everybody happy in Yellowstone, as the environment and climate shifts, those species may not be as suited to live there as something from somewhere else. And so allowing species to move through these parks as like the bison, you know, may not be native, but it might be if the climate changes in a certain way and habitat changes. And so um, trying to explore the flexibility of these park boundaries is something that I think um, we're going to do more of as we get a better understanding of species responses. That's where this framework of interagency management plans now come into play because all around Yellowstone National Park are more federal lands with BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, other national parks, Grand Tetons are close by, um, mm-hmm. and they can all work together on this, as well as all the private lands nearby, too. We have a couple of questions regarding fossils, so you the use of fossils in this regard. We had a question from Mark on Facebook, who's asking about how you account for preservation bias when it comes to conservation questions. And we have a question here from Jayshree. And again, let me know if I've said that wrong. I apologize. Uh, who's asking about uh, how you uh, are impacted where and in, in the opportunities where you get to study 
complete fossils, body fossils versus incomplete remains or trace fossils, as they've mentioned. Can I take the yeah. bias first? Sure. So the preservation <laughs> bias question I'll take first. Um, we'll go back to the Lynn Wingard study with the USGS and the Everglades. Uh, one of those of the multi-proxy sets, one set was, was pollen. And in pollen, there are certain species that are just prolific in how much pollen they generate and, and disperse. So grasses have a bunch and uh, pines have what are called air bladders on their pollen sacs. So they actually fly a long distance. Whereas things like suga um, hemlock has a really huge, well, still can't see with the naked right. eye, but relatively huge. <laughs> and it goes about as far as I can throw this table. <laughs> it doesn't go very far and it doesn't produce very much. So you have to make these corrections based on what we know of uh, plants today and correct uh, for that over-representation or under-representation. And in the work that I do at the community mm -hmm. level, I use occurrence records rather than abundance records. So I'm looking at who is there, like it's a yes or no, um, as opposed to how many are there. And so that helps with some of that too. Um, and some work is just starting to get going. Some papers have come out recently trying to figure out how we can calculate abundance based on what's there and how it affects the measures that we're doing. Um, but right now it's pretty much occurrence data um, because yeah, that can be a problem. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the second part of the question. Um, oh, the question. Uh, so the way that this was phrased, I think, was re referring to something we were talking about before. And I don't remember what we said. Uh, but the question is, so is it the difference between working with whole body fossils as opposed to trace fossils? Do you have experiences you can speak to about working with fossils at different levels of preservation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's in, in, say, western South Dakota, western Nebraska, uh, the, the, the White River Group, they have a lot of well, rivers uh, that were going through the area that were paleo rivers. And out there, yeah, you get a lot of the body skeletons um, and other bones preserved, but you get a lot of these trace fossils that help represent, not I wouldn't say quite behaviors, but at least some sort of tracking. You can see where you have all of these, what seem to be um, prey species herding together, walking along the shoreline of this bank of the river. And then you can see these zigzagging behind them in telodont tracks as they're just trying to follow the herd. And so you can learn different things um, mm -hmm. based on um, what that particular fossil is, whether mm -hmm. it's trace or if it's whole body. Mm -hmm. But you are restricted. And, yeah. And in our work now, um, I do some work with teeth measurements, um, which are typically isolated teeth that we find. But sometimes you get them in the skulls. Um, and we've both used ankle bones. Um, which are typically preserved. If skeleton elements are going to be preserved, you're likely to get a calcaneum, the, the heel bone, because it's so dense and there's not much meat. Scavengers don't want to carry it off. Um, so you, you tend to find those. Um, but we don't, well, I don't anyway, work so much with whole skeletons anymore. I worked on rhinos <laughs> for a while. Yeah, you're the foilless skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> As much of a skeleton as you could possibly want. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think there was also a question, if I can just like jump on that question and follow up. Um, I think there was one that was asked about um, areas of preservation. Um, yes, and I was going to ask that. I can actually, I'll, I'll read that out because I was going to ask. Okay. That. Yeah, uh, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to take your job. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that's fine. I'll read it so that uh, our, our questioner gets credit for it and people will know. Yes. Yes. Um, this was a question by Michael on Facebook. 
who asks about places where fossilization is less common. Uh, rainforests, upland ecosystems, where you don't get as many fossils, but human impact is is important. As it can be extreme. Is there any way to judge the pre-human state of those ecosystems? Is that harder? Uh, Michael actually specifically says, is there any way to judge what the ecosystem should look like? Right. So it gets complicated up there. Uh, like I'm thinking rainforest areas, um, like you mentioned. Um, one thing that we do is we try to find fossil sites of an analogous deposition. So obviously if it's hard to fossilize now, it's hard to fossilize back then too in a rainforest, um, which makes using these multi-proxy studies really useful. So you may not get mammal fossils preserved there, but you might get pollen or you might get leaves or um, you might get some kind of herps preserved. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important to have these models that work for lots of different groups of plants and animals because you're not sure what you're going to find in certain environments. And so my model on artiodactyls may not work as well in rainforest because um, they're just not preserved there, but someone else's leaf model might work. Um, and so it, we just try to use as many things as we can to yeah. tackle the problems. <laughs> and I want to yes. Yes. And I want to circle back to the operative word, should. Oh, yeah. <laughs> should ecosystems look like? They should look like ecosystems. Uh, they're always shifting. They're always changing. Uh, species come in and out. Um, mm -hmm. That's the natural way of things. Um, so trying to have a set point um, and, and say conventional restore, restoration ecology, having a set point that you're trying to get back to, may not always be the best case to, to, to approach. It may be that you want to understand the processes. If, you're, if your river flow should be higher, but you're, you don't have any outwash anymore, either something's happened to the ground in front, uh, upstream, um, or there's something happening along the riverbanks. And you need to really look into those processes mm -hmm. instead of looking at who was here and why. Mm -hmm. What processes led to them being there? Right. No, it makes sense because like, even if you reintroduce the specific species, if there's something wrong with the way the habitat's functioning, they're mm -hmm. just going to die again. Right. They're gone <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> so in my work, I'm looking at the traits rather than the specific species that occur there. And so I'm interested in the trait composition. And you might be able to equal that trait composition with any number of combinations of species. It might not need to be what was there a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's not that we're looking for what it should look like based on what it used to. It's what it could look like based on how it might change. Right, I like that. I guess to Jeff's point, the uh, the status quo in nature is that there isn't a status quo. <laughs> it's that you, the only are thing valuable. The only thing that doesn't change is change itself. Right? <laughs> yeah. You can tell we just defended our dissertation. So <laughs> I think it's an important it point. Is, it so, is. Yeah. No, it's yeah. great. And actually, no. it, it leads nicely into, we have a, a handful of questions about restoration and, and reintroduction. Um, a couple things. Bo Yan, thank you for telling me how to pronounce your name. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, and we're getting into reintroduction and rewilding. And I just want to say, even though it has gone well down the list here, I saw Felix's question and we're getting there. Yes. So I didn't forget it. It's going to happen. <laughs> uh, but let's start with this question from David on Twitter who says, uh, getting at that point uh, that, that you mentioned, uh, ecosystems keep changing even after 
you lost species. Mm -hmm. David asks, what would you say is the most objective way to measure when an ecosystem has evolved beyond its lost species? Mm -hmm. I like that. So I think... I'm going to take the easy way out because I don't study species. <laughs> um, so in what I'm looking at, I'm looking at how the traits are changing through time. And so at a certain spot, as the ecosystem is evolving, the trait composition that it can sustain is changing. And what that means for the species who live there is that they're, they're they might go extinct. They might shift their range. They might, go through any of these number of processes. Um, but it's part of this continuous process. And so part of what I want to go into next is exploring how we document those processes in the fossil record um, so that we can understand things like that. Like what, what does it mean if you pass this point, you know, um, and, and what got you to that point and passed it. And I, that's how I would approach it. Yeah. And so I'm going to go to the systems approach of it also. And say that not every species is going to respond to rising temperature or increasing drought in the same way. Their, their climatic envelope in which they can operate and survive is different based on species. So, for example, the short grass prairie who have prairie dogs, bison, pronghorn antelope, black, uh, black tailed mule deer um, living together. They're not all going to respond the same way with increasing temperature and drought. Bison might have to move north. Prairie dogs might have to move east. They may go away from each other. Yeah. We don't right now. Um, that's where the science is leading right now is where are where these uh, species supposed to be. And that's now developing into a sub-sub-sub-discipline <laughs> of anticipatory management and conservation. How do you get these species to the leading edge of that climate envelope rather than on the lagging edge where you're going to wink out and go extinct? How do we help either translocate them or uh, assist their transportation to where they need to be. So this, this idea, well, a contributing idea, idea is called climate connectivity. <clears throat> and so giving these animals the potential to shift, making sure there's enough connected land that they can live on, um, that they can shift their distributions accordingly. Um, and right now the U S is not so great at it. <laughs> um, it's not but, surprising. But it's also a new idea. And this idea of conservation paleontology is only not very old. I can't estimate. But within, you know, 15 or 20 years, um, we've really amped up the work here. So it, it's all fairly new. Yeah. Well, we've got wonderful up-and-coming scientists <laughs> like yourselves working on it. <laughs> Entire sure, careers sure worth of work. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about conservation paleontology and reintroductions, I think that it is these days inevitable that this question of Pleistocene rewilding comes up. And we've talked about this on the mm -hmm. podcast. So mm -hmm. for people who are unfamiliar, uh, this is a question uh, from Twitter from Little Grayfish, who is uh, referencing this idea that where we've had species go extinct, we can look at the fossil record and find animals or species today that do the same sort of thing that the extinct ones did and put them in an ecosystem. So, for example, North America used to have the American lion and the American mm -hmm. cheetah, and we used to have elephants. And could we 
introduce modern representatives to do those things. The question is, do you think it's a good idea to introduce functionally equivalent species to ecosystems where they've gone extinct in the last hundreds or thousands of years, uh, like the Pleistocene Park idea, which we've yeah. discussed, yep. or uh, there's drama at the end of this question, Ooh. or do you think it would do more harm than good? Jeff called dips on this question already. <laughs> I'm just going to start with a comment saying that we're already doing it. Bison almost went extinct in the last Ice Age. We almost hunted them to extinction, and we've replaced them with cattle to a huge economic benefit to our entire society. Um, so that's one direction. Now we're trying to reverse some of that action mm -hmm. back to bison. Yes, cattle were not native, but they are loosely equivalent. Very, very loosely. <laughs> <laughs> they are it's, If you squint, <laughs> they're very similar. <laughs> yeah, right? if, if I take my glasses off. That's right. <laughs> so that's where and I'd start it. Yeah. And I would say I will never advocate for putting proboscideans or elephants of any sort out on the prairie here. <laughs> um, there's just too many things to consider. And I, I don't think that that extreme is needed. Um, there's some amount of this that occurs naturally. So like peccaries are continuing to shift north. Um, armadillos are shifting north. My family told me recently armadillos are into southern Illinois now, um, which is fascinating. Um yeah, so these species are already shifting and kind of creating their own new communities. Um, by purposefully introducing something, you run a lot of risks that could go wrong. And so while I think there's merit to exploring it, and this is written into a proposal I have pending right now, is to look at how domestic species that have become straight, like feral or have escaped their livestock pens, um, how they're affecting the trait composition on the landscape. Are they replacing a native species? Um, because in West Texas, um, a lot of species that were brought here for trophy hunting, like Nilgai and what red sheep and yeah, I forget what else is out there. Yeah. Um, but they've, they've escaped from these trophy hunting ranches and they're just all over the landscape and they look like they belong there oryx. and they do really well. Yeah. Oryx. And so, um, the consequences could be limited resources for pronghorn then or bighorn sheep. Like there, there's gotta be some kind of give and take there. And so we need to understand what the, what the impact is before we start just, you know, putting an elephant out there. <laughs> Think of the zebra mussel and the Asian flying carp and the ecological devastation that came with that mm -hmm. introduction intentional or not. Yeah. Uh, it happened. Um, and I do think with intention, we can try to minimize impacts, but we're never perfect at it. Well, yeah, um, no animals, so, a closed system, like, right. They're going to bring and in weird stuff. You have to consider the animals that do live there because this might be a new predator or it might be, um, something without competing. And <laughs> there's just the butterfly effect. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so to, I think it's worth exploring like research wise using the computer maybe we don't do it immediately <laughs> yeah. um using some of these systems that are already happening to understand the the possible outcome yeah is where we are right now try and guide that outcome as best as possible yeah. well informed public policy mm -hmm. right it sounds like that's a big part of it you know as dramatic as it is to think of the doing the thing as you know cargo shipping a bunch of elephants over here to, to the U.S., along with the predators that have to hunt them. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah. We don't have to do that. They're already here in the zoos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a fair point. We just need to open the gates. <laughs> I will say that's a question that came up in my prelim exams and my dif- dissertation defense. Yeah. So it's something that like it's an active follows debate. my yeah. research. <laughs> well, along those lines, if I may take it yet a step further, uh, <laughs> on to the subject of de-extinction, which we've talked about before. Yes. Uh, which I know isn't necessarily what uh, you all are working on. Uh, one of our younger listeners, Felix, asks, if we brought back mammoths, what problems would there be? It's a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. So I just submitted a paper that's human-oriented, so I'm thinking humans right now. And the biggest issue if we're to release them, say, into the Canadian and Alaskan steppes is that there's people that live there. And these are novel ecosystems to elephants. Because remember, when, when, when mammoths were here, all of Canada was an ice sheet, two miles thick. Uh, so those ecosystems are, are brand new to elephants um, in North America, if we were to introduce them today. And people live there too. So those people don't have any knowledge of how to interact with these things. So this human-wildlife in, uh, conflict would just skyrocket. And we have um, friends who study human-elephant conflict in Africa. Um, and so this is still something that people are trying to figure out, um, how to coexist with elephants. And I think that would definitely be a major thing over here. Um, they are notorious for tearing up crops and destroying fences and sometimes houses. And it's just – and then, you know, humans have to live their lives too. Yeah. Um, would it be that, cool to see? Would, Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess you have to think real carefully before introducing a ten-ton, a herd of ten-ton animals into a new yeah, place. Yeah, you know you have you to consider, one. You have to do a whole herd. Yeah, you have to have a herd, and you would have to have enough food to feed them. So, do we even have the right vegetation to feed them? Um, and do we have enough of it? No. Do do they have water access wherever we drop them off? Um, it. Yeah, there's just a lot of things to consider. And Eastern Russia is trying to experiment with this now. They've yeah. brought in a, a huge herds of bison to repopulate the areas and horses to replace the Przewalski's horse. Um, there's just not enough of them to repopulate. Mm-hmm. So places are trying it um, in remote areas. It also makes me wonder what uh, you were saying about there being competition. Uh, like Canada already has a megafauna herbivore in the moose like yeah you know now are we gonna have to worry about the moose if we were to bring back mammoth right yeah and, right. and bison and elk and muskox and reindeer caribou yeah, yeah. so yeah, lots of things to consider yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not a simple thing no uh you uh jeff you were talking about bison before and the reintroduction and we actually did get a question about this from Arik. and again let me know if that's not how you say your name who has said in the YouTube chat here live, hey, you can put questions in the YouTube chat, everybody. <laughs> uh, I've heard of bison-cow hybrids in an effort to preserve bison and uh, domesticate to produce an economically valuable product. First of all, how do you view this as being a viable way to preserve the species? And second, how could this domestic bison, domestic bison, <laughs> affect its native habitat? That's a good question, and it's one that does keep popping up everywhere I go. <laughs> and so, yeah, the the original thinking uh, of hybridizing cattle and, and bison was to create a hardy, ecologically hardy uh, species that can resist drought, 
and poor conditions and still at least be viable on the landscape. That thinking, though, was from the 1800s. This is a really old school of thought, and it has not panned out well. Uh, You get the worst traits of both species. (laughs) So they're really stubborn, and they're not that productive. (laughs) Um, And so what we see today with the testing that's been going around is to try and weed some of that out um, is... We only see about 5% of the entire bison population has any remnant of this um, still in their pool. Can you explain the testing, what they're looking for? So there, there, there's certain um, markers, genetic markers, um, on the mitochondrial DNA that you can pull up. Um, and they'll say, hey, this looks like bison, and this one looks like cattle. And then if you get a mix of the two, then you say, oh, well, this is actually a hybrid, because we see both on, uh, appearing. And so at the genetic level, we can figure out what that admixture was. So for bison producers today, who are private bison producers today in North America, who are part of the National Bison Association, uh, it is illegal to crossbreed these species. Uh, you cannot do that to be a member. Uh, there is the American Beefalo Association, who continues to perpetuate this lineage to try and make it uh, more viable than the poor traits of both. Um, and really at this point, it's, I would say it's, it's a novelty, um, item. It's, it's not going to be replacing bison or cattle at this point. I will say, um, I've only been around the bison industry as long as we've been together. So mm-hmm. 10 years. Um, and I would have never known there were bi- or cattle genetics in that bison. Like it looks like a bison. It talks like a bison, <laughs> you know, yeah. It is a bison. There's not that much left to make it look like a cattle. Um, but yeah, there's still still some of that genetic material left in there. Interesting, interesting. interesting. Um, the person that I called Arik says that their name is pronounced Eric. So thanks, Eric. <laughs> Here is another question from Michael on Facebook. Uh, speaking about introduced, uh, uh, the, the, the question of introduced species causing problems. Have any old world species that were introduced to the Americas started to develop into new subspecies? And if so, would removing that new diversity be controversial? That is a heavy question. (laughs) So I was thinking of the hogs. Um, So the first thing that comes to my mind is the pig. Um, So the, we have the peccaries natively here. Um, that's the North American version of the pig. Um, but what we think of as a pig was brought here as a livestock animal and got out, turned loose, somehow ended up wild. And it has turned for into... For 500 years. For 500 years. Yeah. Thank you. And has turned into this feral boar hog. Um, and I don't know how different it is from what came over, but it has a huge ecological impact across the South, especially. And I believe they're like all over. They're now the most being reported in Saskatchewan. Um, yeah. But in, wow. so, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so wow. Okay. And they are just little terrors and not little, they're huge terrors in Texas. Um, they kill people, they tear up landscapes, they cause car accidents. And there are, as far as I know, no rules about how you hunt them um, because they just want them gone. They're prolific. They're everywhere. Open season. They, they yeah. make lots of more hogs. Uh, 
And so removing that genetic diversity, I don't think would be so controversial. (laughs) It's how you remove it that becomes controversial. Um, How do you limit their populations in a humane and controlling way that isn't, you know, harmful to the hogs or hurting them unnecessarily? Um, But yeah, I think most people would say, you know, get rid of them. (laughs) And and you said horses, yeah. right? Uh, so I was going to do one last little cap on okay. that. It's like, they are ecologically successful. Yeah. yeah. Always that's, died out a long time ago. Well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe they are useful for trying to re-domesticate mm-hmm. if we can. Mm-hmm. But, but then you have to ask questions about if they're taking the place of peccaries. Right. <laughs> so like, it just keeps going. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, uh, horses originated in North America and then were extirpated uh, in North American continent and were brought back by the conquistadors and then many other successions after that. Um, And so we have now the Mustang and the American quarter horse who are genetically different from their predecessors uh, from the old world. I don't see many people wanting to get rid of American quarter horses or Mustangs, although they are wreaking ecological damage in states like Nevada um, and Arizona Um, And so the management is really what's the controversial part is how you take care of it. So he does more work on this than I do. Um, But the human factor plays a large role here, right? So if you're asking people, do you want to get rid of these feral hogs or do you want to get rid of these feral horses or both? You know, um, they have a lot stronger feelings depending on the animal that you're limiting. Um, People are more attached to horses than they are to pigs. (laughs) They are culturally significant to us humans. Um, so those are like the two examples that come to mind. Yeah. Um, I remember reading about uh, issues because there are people here in the U.S. and around the world who are invested in removing introduced mm-hmm. species, dangerous introduced species. And I've mm-hmm. heard of a handful of cases where you have introduced species that have been around for so long that they've become culturally important. Yeah, that iconic. People go, oh, no, that's. I think I heard about this with swans. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think it was New York or somewhere in that area where people were going, no, no, those have been here for like 100 years. We've grown up with this species. Those are our swans. Those are our swans or whatever it was. (laughs) And so there's no buy-in from people. And in fact, there's opposition to removing. No, no, Mm -hmm. I think there's uh, motions to protect the swan, like put in official protection. Yeah, I know a good number of birds um, were brought over to make Central Park look like a traditional English garden. Um, and so I think there are a number of species. That, starlings. Uh, come to mind. Starlings, yeah. 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 <laughs> the so, Europeans. <laughs> yes. Uh, we have a question here from Creatures of the Labyrinth. Cool name. In our YouTube chat. Um, so a minotaur, I assume. Yep. Who's <laughs> asking... Uh, we mentioned that ecosystems tend towards consistent change. We said before that ecosystems are kind of ever-shifting. But agriculture is based on trying to keep things simple and predictable. So they ask, do you think that an agricultural society can coexist with a healthy ecosystem? Or are these oxymorons in some way? Oh, it's like they my grant proposal. <laughs> <laughs> If you're a funder, yeah. let us know. <laughs> so recently there have been papers that recognize agricultural land as part of the ecosystem scale because it covers such a large 
um, amount of land. It's just, it's so prolific and it's such a large role. Like it's just its own ecosystem now. Um, that being said, it's a lot easier for some species to live in agriculture land than it is for others. So um, I have a lab mate who studies snakes and he, I, I'm vaguely remembering, I might be wrong. I hope John is listening and can correct me. Um, <laughs> but I, he had a paper that came out, um, not, he wasn't an author. He was reading this paper that snakes were actually beneficial to some types of agriculture lands because of the way they move the soil or something. Um, but the animals that I study might be eating the crops that are growing there. <laughs> um, and so they're not quite as welcome. Um, I know when we were in Tennessee, bears would eat corn a lot um, and pay the price. Um, and so I forget where I was going with this. Oh, so when you're when you're thinking about conservation on agriculture lands, you have to consider like what animal it is and the impact it has on ag agriculture, because that's still like you have to balance the economic and the ecological. Right. And so I think working with with the agricultural managers, the farmers, to help with these corridor issues. You know, if you have protected land on either side of your field, just give them a corridor. <laughs> like, let's let's help connect these and try to keep the animals, you know, in in their piece of land and the corn in their piece of land. And it's just, we don't know yet. There, I think it's possible. I think we have a long ways to go before it's actually viable. Yeah, and so I think that is largely also having to do with crop agriculture. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say that livestock agriculture is a little bit better at mixing uh, the ecosystems with the way that they manage because they're highly dependent on pastures, which are grasslands. Um, and so your same grassland species are going through. But with crops, corn, soybean, cotton, uh, et cetera, um, there's quite a few papers that have been coming out um, over the last decade looking at planting swatches in the middle of your cornfield that are uh, wildflowers and just leave them as perennial wildflower swatches and don't harvest it. Don't cut up the combine, please <laughs> leave them. And that creates these corridors. It creates these uh, places for native bees to be able to pollinate and to be able to move out and, and have more than just corn pollen uh, accessible to them. Um, and that research is, is, has been done by Jonathan Foley, a global eco guy on Twitter. You should follow him. Um, he's got a lot of cool things. Um, I, I, I like his work, um, but um, that's yeah. one of the things that comes to mind. And he's shown with, with, with quantitative analysis by including these swatches of wildflowers is you actually have increased productivity of your wanted crops, not just per mm -hmm. acre, but net. Yeah. So even though you take it out of production, you're increasing all of production. Very interesting. So, so done. <laughs> not, not only not necessarily mutually exclusive, uh, the stability of agriculture versus the, the law versus chaos of yeah, agriculture yeah. versus nature, <laughs> yeah. um, but possibly together. Yeah. Beneficial. Must, yeah. Cool. Wow. What a pitch. Hopeful. Hopeful. Yeah. Hey, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, uh, let me ask a depressing question. Hi. Uh, this <laughs> is, uh, also our Minotaur friend says that their name is Lewis. Thanks, Lewis. Good name for a minotaur. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, here's another question in the chat. Uh, Austin asks, are there instances in which a keystone species or other essential species has gone extinct 
and how do you deal with such situations? And if you wouldn't mind to explain what a keystone species is for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term. Do you want to go first? You sure. study a keystone species. I do study a keystone species. <laughs> so a keystone species is, is, is one that is essentially an ecosystem engineer where its behavior and its interactions with the ecosystem around it will create more ecosystems for other animals. And so one example with bison is that they wallow. They have a behavior where they will roll on their sides. They'll dig into the dirt. They make this pit. It's almost a permanent pit. It will, it will sustain on the landscape for decades. In the springtime, it will be inundated with rainwater. It creates a little pond. You now have a place for your frogs to re reproduce in the prairies where there's very little water at times. And so it's essential for a cascading effect for other species to sustain. Beavers are another ecosystem engineer and keystone species. Um, the way that they will manipulate. Yes, uh, you <laughs> too. Uh, also, the ecosystem engineers. <laughs> um, and so they all manipulate the ecosystems around them. Um, and so we did almost lose bison. And in many places, we did lose them. And bringing them back has... Um, reinstated some of these natural norms. Um, Anurans uh, populations are rebounding. <laughs> yes, frogs, anurans <laughs> are rebounding um, in some places because of the reintroduction of bison. Um, beavers are re-taking um, over some of their lands through the river systems of Texas. Mm -hmm. And they're helping to take out some of the, um, um, what's the bad one? Cedar? Uh, they take out cedar and they also take out some mesquite, which is an undesirable. So they help keep that trimmed, um, keep that woody encroachment trimmed. And <clears throat> I would say that it it is unfortunate to lose a keystone species. Like you don't want that. Um, but like with the beaver, they're shifting, and so now you have this new keystone species in a new ecosystem. And so if we can watch these. Well, not watch, but it, like these species will shift um, their ranges and maybe you get a keystone species where you didn't have one or it's filling the, the role left by one who's already moved on. Like they're they're not completely interchangeable, of course, um, but there's you have to allow some room for overturn of keystone species. Does that make sense? Yeah. Explain yeah. that well. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Salmon's another one. So when we put in bridges. We've made salmon locally extinct in the upper parts of some of their tributary rivers yeah. in the Pacific Northwest and, and New England. There's been a big effort to remove those dams or at least make salmon walks so they can get back to these mm -hmm. places. And the big difference is, is when they go to the top of these tributaries, they die. That is a huge nutrient flux for the mm -hmm. entire ecosystem. In Alaska, the signature of the marine signature using isotope um, stable isotopes, we can trace that their impact because of where bears are eating them and now moving th that nutrient cycle, they're dumping it tens, if not hundreds of kilometers away from that river. That nutrient uh, cycling is, is, is profound. Yeah. We talk a lot about, um, uh, oh, we've mentioned several times on the podcast, this notion that we live in a, in a world that is so lacking in so many of the most important species that were here not all that long ago. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of the ecosystems we look at are already broken in that sense. Mm -hmm. That you are missing major impacts like yeah. that. It's trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to restore as much of that mm -hmm. 
uh, stability as you can is a really daunting task. Yeah. It is. Um, so we're almost out of time, I know, but I'm going to say one more thing. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's where the fossil record comes in. Um, so we have pre-anthropogenic effects. This is what it looked like before humans started messing around with the whole system. Um, and I think about it as vectors. So we had this environment with this group of animals, and we've moved to this environment with this group of animals. If we know from from projections how the environment is going to change, we can continue our vectors and kind of identify what the biodiversity potential looks like. Um, and so, yeah, we have that impact in the middle, but if we can create a long enough vector using enough fossil sites, we can kind of see where humans play a role and kind of the blip in the system. Um, and we have to keep humans in the model for going forward because humans aren't going away yeah. anytime soon. Um, and we're the ones who put it back. So, <laughs> um, so it's kind of like a, this is the change before humans. This is the change with and going forward with humans. Yeah. I like the idea of, of you're basically like, you know, you're filling out a graph and then able to continue mm -hmm. it into empty space to get an estimate of what might might be right yep cool. that's the goal <laughs> so we have time for a couple more questions and a bunch more just flooded in <laughs> so i'm gonna ask a few more and let's see if we can get some quick answers so we can get through, through a bunch of <laughs> lightning round uh, the first is from finn who asks uh who says i've always been interested in the idea of whether or not we should intervene to preserve endangered species if they're going extinct due to non-human related factors. So my question is, would you say there are ethical limitations to how humans should intervene with failing ecosystems? I know I said lightning round and then I asked you like <laughs> yeah. a super yeah. detailed complex question. question. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Are there ethical issues? Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> so I think we all want to intervene, right? Like we don't want to see the polar bear go extinct. We want to help. Um, or frogs in Colombia. Frogs, frogs in Colombia. Yeah. Um, and there, there are efforts we can make, but there's only so much, right? And so we can make sure there's corridors for climate connectivity to allow for species shifting. We can make sure that, you know, there's wildflower corridors through agriculture, pastures, or agricultural lands, um, we can facilitate continued survival, um, but we can't like can't ensure that it happens. Yeah, right. um, and so when you get into the ethics of it, you know, I'm going to sound like a real horrible person, but sometimes there may not be an option yeah. to to connect these habitats. Sometimes it it might be the end point. You know, the rhinos went extinct in Tennessee at one point. Um, it's it's part of that ecosystem turnover. I like the idea of making the situation uh, as best as you can to give them a chance. Yeah. Let's Re not make it worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Rather than necessarily, you know, all right, we need to breed as many of these we can and just start putting them everywhere. Right. You're making quality and of life adjustments. Yeah. And there are efforts for that. Like conservation breeding is a very real thing and has success stories. Oh, yeah. um, Many. And even the white rhino um, has done fairly well with this. Um, zoos are able to breed and release them. And so that's part of facilitating, I think. But unfortunately, there might come a day when the northern or when the white rhino um, 
is no longer viable on the landscape. Um, and so at what point are you doing a disservice? Right. And that's when it gets into the real ethical dilemmas. Big debate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and along those same lines, we have another question from Boyan, who asks, when slash if uh, does an invasive species become a native species? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a great this Go. is a great point to, to time to mention that if you'd like to learn more from these two wonderful folks, their Twitter handles are underneath their names. <laughs> yes. So if you want to ask them more questions later with, uh, that we run out of time to discuss in detail. I will say I'm really horrible at Twitter, so you have a much better chance if you have a question t- tweeting him. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> Don't be offended if it's short and snappy. I, I will do my best. <laughs> I only get 120 characters. <laughs> But I will, I'll check it. I'll get on tonight and tomorrow. How's that? That's my deal. <laughs> my quick answer okay. would be that going from one connected ecosystem to the next, if they can naturally make that connection, then they're probably native enough um, at that point. But if they are introduced, which we're going to call unnaturally, even though it's, everything around us is natural, we're living. If it's introduced by humans, that is still unnatural, and it's now invasive forever. <laughs> I'd agree with that. Right. We are also invasives. Yes, <laughs> we sure we were introduced by humans. Yeah, uh, indeed. <laughs> All right, one last question, and I apologize for anyone out there if we didn't get to your question. Uh, stay in touch. Reach out to these cool folks. There are a lot of good questions. Josh on Facebook asked, "How might one pursue a career in conservation paleontology?" So Jeff and I took different but similar routes. Um, so we'll just quickly go through um, what, how we did this. Um, I came at it from a biology perspective. Um, I studied biology in my undergrad. Um, I was in a pre-med program, but knew that's not what I wanted to do. And I was a, I think I was in the second semester of my junior year when I learned that paleontology was a thing that people do and study. And <laughs> like, I could do that. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> um, I so I um, started with an internship um, the summer after I graduated um, at Ashfall. If people need internships, Ashfall is a great place to intern. Um, and and then I studied geology for a while, and then I came to ETSU and studied the rhinos there. I, like that was my paleo master's degree. Um, but I really struggled with making that work mean something. Like, what does it matter that we had this rhino in Tennessee five million years ago? You know, like it's cool. Sure. Um, But what does it really tell us? And so I I really struggled with that. And it was this really interesting um, skeleton because it has these long legs. It's browsing and most of the rhinos were grazing. And and so I like started putting together like, oh, like things have changed. And, you know, like this is a different pattern than these other rhinos. And and so that's what led me to, to doing this kind of paleontology and like looking at how it's living in its ecosystem. Um. So that's how I did it. I it was a very I did a teaching masters at one point. Like it's <laughs> circuitous. Yes. <laughs> I, I would say that I also have a circuitous route. Um, I started as a bison rancher in in Wisconsin. That's how I grew up. Um, and then, but I always wanted to be a geologist. I always liked rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went and got my degree in geology. And then I got involved with the paleo club that was at my undergrad and. I was like, oh, paleo is pretty cool, too. And it's still got rocks involved. Um, and people are like, oh, we've got all these bison fossils. You know bison. Just start working on these. All right, cool. I know the species. And then I just continued uh, with my paleo master's at ETSU. 
Um, and because of my farming background uh, with bison ranching background, I always had an applied feel to whatever I do. I always want to do the basic science and then immediately apply it, uh, how to make it useful. Um, so it was less of a jump for me, I think. Um, and that's why what led me to a wildlife sciences where I could merge um, my what I was bringing to a new table. The discipline didn't really use paleo before. Yeah. And so my advisor certainly didn't. Uh, and Can I jump in real quick? Sure. So neither of us are in a paleontology department right now. He's in a wildlife department. I was in an ecosystem science department. Um, it's it. You don't typically find a department of paleontology. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so don't go looking for one. <laughs> if you do find one. Yeah. Great. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you have to learn the skills along the way. Um, read widely and read deeply and apply it. Mm -hmm. um, and you make it your own. Uh, this is so new. There's no prescriptive way to say how to do it. Um, um, just do it. <laughs> One of the things that I think is super cool. Uh, the, so we, I didn't mention this in the beginning. Uh, and I mentioned it at the beginning of every of the other three live chats. Uh, Rachel and Jeff are yet again friends of ours from grad school, from our <laughs> master's program. <laughs> and one of the, the super cool things that I... We didn't originally plan it that way. We didn't plan this to just be a, a class reunion. But <laughs> it worked uh, out. And I think it's so cool. Uh, and I hope for people who have seen all four of these to take note of the fact that, you know, you think of uh, uh, that schooling, you know, you think of paleontologists or any scientist as following a path and yep. becoming a scientist. But what is so cool about getting to talk to our colleagues is that we all came from different places. Like I'm pretty sure every one of us came from a different state. Yeah. <laughs> all the people you've seen started out in a different state, all converged doing different projects, different research at this one school. And now you see that we've all gone off to do, we have a, people who got into ancient DNA, which is, completely did no one at our school nope. did that we've got conservation paleo folks who that wasn't a thing that we had going on at our school uh museum work and it's such a cool uh display of the diversity not just of what people do in paleontology but where they come from and how they get there yeah. we kind of we are we are several ships passing yes you know on our, <laughs> our respective journeys and it's just so much fun to get that perspective it's so much fun to go to conferences and see everyone give talks on what they're doing now and you know yeah. we take the big group picture um but we're all presenting in different sessions and <laughs> yeah it's, it's really great neat. and it's and it's been real helpful for the podcast oh yeah it's it means, great yeah. like when we were doing the ancient dna episode it was like cool i don't know anything about dna and i texted lee i was like hey do you mind if i call you and just ask you a bunch of questions and we're going to record it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we're going to record it. <laughs> you should have split us up. You didn't get your money's worth here. <laughs> right. That's true. We'll have you back. We'll bring it. We haven't done a Rhinos episode. So All right. Maybe. Or, uh, and we haven't uh, bovids and stuff like that. That's so. true. Yeah. yeah. So we might, we might pick your brains at some point. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Rachel and Jeff, thank you so much for being here. This was tons of fun. Uh, yeah. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Absolutely. Everyone on the internet, thank you for joining us. Thank you for following us. For awesome questions. Thank you for awesome questions. Questions. Like we said in the beginning, uh, this is the last live chat we have planned at the moment, which is not to say we're never going to do it again. If you liked it, if you've enjoyed it, 
let us know if you want to see more. We have a lot more cool friends uh, mm-hmm. who will talk about all sorts of cool stuff. If you haven't seen them, they are all archived on YouTube. You can watch them on our YouTube channel. Uh, we will also be releasing the audios on the podcast yep. stream, so you can listen to the audio. So if you didn't get enough the first time, you can walk around, you know, go for a walk in the woods and listen again. Uh, go check out our Zazzle store for these cool new <laughs> shirts that we have. Follow our friends on the Twitters and the, the social medias if you want to get more from them. Um, I see we've already, we're getting requests now. I mentioned rhinos. And we uh, there we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. what we like to see. Yep. We have a few friends who will be very excited about it. Right. You now have an, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, our young viewer, Felix, is rooting for uh, rhinos. <laughs> Thank you once again for joining us. Will, this has been super fun. It has. It's if been really people cool. want to do it, we'll do it again. Best of luck with your cool down from your dissertation, <laughs> from being congratulations on your doctor statuses. Uh, and good luck moving forward. Thanks. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.